Good to see you guys. How we doing? Raise your hand if you took a big scary test this week, high schoolers. Or anyone. AP Bio, what else did we take? Co well, there's those. <laughs> COVID test, hopefully we didn't pass that one. Um, who else? AP Bio, what else? What test did you take, Skylar? Math test. AP language? What? Oh, nice. Very cool. Well, hey, congratulations. If you've taken them, that means they're done, and you don't have to stress anymore about it. If you have to take some again next week, sorry about that. Um, well, it's the season of tests and school and stuff, but this, look up here, guys, I believe is the most important thing we do all week. As Christians gather together, I believe this. I wouldn't be here if I didn't believe this. I believe that when we gather together to worship Jesus and we open up God's word, the truths from scripture absolutely transform our lives. They actually change us. They make us different. We talk different. We speak differently. We think differently uh, about things. And I'm saying it's great to do tests. It's great to do all these things, but I'm so glad that you're here and you're prioritizing this time. And we believe that more people need to be transformed by the gospel. Amen? Amen. That's what we're talking about, transformation uh, tonight. Open up to Acts chapter 9. And um, does somebody have a friend that they would, okay, if you were to think of your friends, you could probably rate them on levels of like dramatic or not, you know, like, again, don't point anyone, especially if they're in the room, because that might cause a fight. Do you have anyone in your life that you would maybe say they're a tad bit dramatic, meaning they overreact, they oversell, I still see pointing, which is kind of awkward, but... All right, do you have someone? Okay, raise your hand if you're like, yes, I know someone in my life who's dramatic. And then the people raise, they're not raising their hand. They're like, I do not know anyone who's dramatic. Why would everyone? And they're like, wait a minute, it's me. I'm the dramatic one. No, okay. Um, I always had friends, you know, I, I have a series of them and I can be a little overdramatic sometimes. Um, one of my favorite things that people who are maybe overdramatic say is like, dude, uh, changed my life, changed my life, bro. Does anyone have those friends? So I, I often be like, hey, how was like the McDonald's you got after student ministry? They're like, dude, this is the best McDonald's I've ever had. Changed my life. And you're like, all right, cool, that's great. I remember when, I, so I was in high school when the first Avengers movie came out. I know, super old. Um, and I saw it came out 10 years ago, like a couple, like a couple days ago. It was like, this is 10 years old. I'm like, what? But I remember after I went with my friends, and like the chatter in the lobby or before or after, it was like, how was it, brother? Like, dude, changed my life. Best movie ever, right? I remember that. Do you guys have friends like that? There's like, whatever. It's just like, whatever's cool that week. They're like, that album, that movie, that music, whatever. This changed my life, bro. Completely changed my life. For me, I, um, I would say, so it's baseball season, right? And a lot of people are watching baseball. Actually, probably not that many people but I'm watching baseball because I think it's fun and cool to watch. And so I'm a Phillies fan deep in my heart, but I'm also kind of a Cubs fan, but I'm mostly a Phillies fan. And I remember when in 2008, when I was in sixth grade, the Phillies for the first time in my entire life and the only time apparently in my life were not bad. They're actually doing well. And they actually go to the World Series in 2008 and they're about to win. I think it's game four of the series. I think they just swept the whole thing or something. I can't really remember, but I remember that final game, they won the World Series. And me, in my sixth grade mind, I just exploded. I was so happy that the baseball team I liked won the World Series. My parents, get this, the next day, it was Halloween 2008. They let me skip school. My parents are great parents. 
Let me skip school. And they went with me to downtown Philly, which is like 45 minutes away. And we got to see the parade. So we got to see all the players go by. I saw Chase Utley. He had the trophy over his head. I was like, yes, this is amazing. And the next day, November 1st, I go back to school. And uh, what did I say that next morning? Dude, changed my life. Best thing that's ever happened. And it is a highlight of my life. It was something cool. Um, But we're talking about true transformation tonight. When we look at Acts chapter 9, uh, we see, and not to be overdramatic, and again, we have friends who think like this, and we can be dramatic in our lives. This may be the most radical transformation in history. I mean it. The story we're about to read may be one of the most significant transformations in history. And true transformation isn't possible without God. Right? You can work hard to change things about your life. You can uh, try your best to make improvements. You can uh, try hard not to sin, but you'll always fall short. You can have some disciplines in your life, and that's great. All of these things are awesome and things to strive for. But true transformation is not possible without God and the power of Jesus. And tonight we're going to read a story about a man who was actively pursuing uh, persecution against the church. We've read about this. As the church is on the move, people are out to get the church. People are down, are trying to press this rebellion down. They're trying to take Christians, either throw them in prison or even kill them. And we see one of the leaders of this persecution against the new church is radically transformed by the gospel. True and positive transformation is only possible. Complete transformation is only possible from God. Let's pray as we begin to read this. God, I pray that we would uh, have our eyes and ears open to what your word is saying. Uh, I pray that you would continue to guide us and direct us towards truth. Uh, For the person who doesn't believe transformation is possible for them, I pray that they would look at this passage uh, and think differently afterwards. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. But Saul, okay, again, last week Paul did a great job talking about Philip preaching Uh, to this Ethiopian man, and he uh, becomes saved. It's this radical transformation that happens last week, we saw. Um, And chapter 9 says this, But Saul, still breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem." A few weeks ago, we saw uh, an introduction to this man named Saul. And Saul, if you remember, was there at the death of Stephen. It actually says at the very end of that chapter uh, that Saul approved of the execution of Stephen. The first martyr in the history of the church, this guy was standing there. Uh, He would have seen it happen, right? He would have uh, been approving of it. He was thankful that this person who uh, was representing Jesus or challenging the authority uh, that Paul had as a, as a good religious person, uh, he was happy that this person was dead. And so this isn't just some guy who kind of had a bad experience at church once. Like this isn't some guy who's like, well, I just have some questions about this whole God thing. This is a person who knows God's real, who thinks Jesus uh, is not God and is actively pursuing and hurting anyone who says that Jesus is Lord. You see, it's, it's really, it's funny. He's actually traveling from Jerusalem uh, to Damascus. Like he was so, con- he like wasn't content enough to keep this persecution in Jerusalem. This guy's literally going uh, places to try 
to persecute Christians, which is ironic because we'll see he becomes the greatest missionary of all time to not, you know, to of course pursue truth and to preach the gospel. But here he is actively trying to squash uh, this, 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 this thing that is happening as the church is growing. Verse, uh, verse three shows us what happens to this man. Verse three, now as he went on this, his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. They led him to the land and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Here we see in verses 1 through 9, a radical encounter. A radical encounter. Sometimes we picture moments with Jesus, if you've been a Christian for a while, sometimes we picture moments with Jesus as uh, purely intellectual, right? We're thinking about God, we are studying scripture, we are uh, knowing God more through, through, uh, through studying or reading, or sometimes we think of our uh, encounters with Jesus as emotional, right? When we feel close to Christ or when we uh, uh, feel like the spirit moving in our lives or something. Uh, But here we see a true and awesome and radical encounter with Jesus that doesn't seem to be either. The only thing that uh, shows us that we've had a true encounter with Jesus is how we act afterwards, right? The, The true encounter with Jesus will change us. A true encounter with uh, the Lord of the universe, Jesus Christ, will uh, change you. And God can use scripture and intellect and studying. God can use emotion through the spirit. But a real encounter with Jesus uh, changes you and changes us. And here in this awesome, amazing moment, we see this man, this stubborn, sinful uh, man who is, it says, breathing murderous threats. It's this picture of like some wolf trying to ravage or destroy the sheep brought to the floor, literally on his face because of the power of Jesus. A radical encounters. It's a change. It leads us to change, whether it's a change of our attitudes, perspectives, speech, whatever it may be. A true encounter with Jesus changes us. It's not a fad or it's not an emotion that we feel for a few weeks and then we leave. It's not behavior modification. It's not a list of rules that we need to follow. Uh, knowing Jesus and encountering Jesus is, into, is an invitation into transformation. It's a redirection of our desires, our plans, our emotions, and our very heart, all of which already belong to God in the first place. It's just redirecting those things back at him. That's what a true encounter with Jesus does. I'm different now. I'm not the same as I used to be. And we see this man setting out to persecute the church, right? To spread more hate, to try to arrest people in Damascus and bring them back to Jerusalem to show off how many Christians are in prison. And it's so interesting, this is the first time we see Damascus, so the gospel's spreading, it's over 100 miles away from Jerusalem. And we see this man who went out to, uh, to kill or to hunt down Christians, persecute them, throw them in prison, whatever, just fall before God, fall before the Lord. 
Look at this, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Acts chapter nine is the last time we see the resurrection uh, Jesus in the New Testament. So this is the last time we see uh, Jesus physically uh, present, right? Of course, his spirit is moving. He's indwelling all believers. He's still doing that today. And so we worship God for that. But this is the last time we see him in scripture. It's really interesting. I don't know why that struck me so much, but Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Think about this, right? I, I, you think like this guy is going out and he's, he's trying to actively hurt the church and you have the God of the universe meeting this just sinful, tiny man. And you think of a few words that you would say if you were God, like, hey man, stop it. <laughs> hey man, guess what? You're gonna die. Like, or hey man, have fun, like never being able to talk again or whatever, right? And Jesus so graciously says, why, why are you doing this? What's the goal? Why are you persecuting me? Jesus takes the persecution of his church very seriously. To attack you because of your faith, if somebody does that one day, they're attacking Jesus. I've said this all along. People aren't gonna hate you or dislike you or think you're different uh, because you're a spiritual person or because you know the Bible. They're not gonna hate you for any of those reasons. They're going to hate you because you profess Jesus is Lord. But that's what makes Christianity what it is. You can have plenty of people who know the Bible or understand God, but when we say Jesus is Lord, Lord of my life, Lord of the universe, uh, we are Christians. And so of course Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? When Saul was throwing people in prison, it's like he was throwing Jesus in prison. When Saul was approving the execution of Stephen, it's like he was approving the death of Jesus. And so this man stands guilty before Christ, something that we all find ourselves in. But it's not the answer I would have expected. It's not the response I would have maybe expected. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He's going out on this mission. So uh, Paul, if you read through all of his letters, Saul, as he's called it here, uh, he's a good religious person before Jesus, right? He, he follows the, the law. He understands the law, but he didn't know God. He didn't recognize his voice. He didn't know who he was in this moment. Who are you, Lord? In that moment, he falls uh, to the floor. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. And of course, the men around him, they don't see uh, physically he, Jesus in this moment, but they, uh, they hear and they know something is going on. He rises up uh, and he's looking around, but he can't see anything. It says in verse eight, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight. He neither ate nor drank. God can reach anyone. God can reach anyone. We already said this was a person who's actively pursuing the, the imprisonment of Christians for professing Jesus. And here Jesus is himself meeting with this person on the road to Damascus. Jesus can change anyone, right? And we never, I promise you this, ever in your life can ever think in your mind that someone's too far gone for the gospel. We can never find ourselves in the position of saying, well, that person, I get. Like they, they ask questions about the Bible. They'll come with me to the student ministry. I think I could probably evangelize to them. And I think God maybe would love them. But this person over here, whoa, 
This guy in my science class, I mean, no chance, right? My cousin, my sister, no chance. They will never understand. And we can never as Christians get into this mindset that that is a reality. God's grace can and will meet everyone. God's grace can meet everyone. No one is too far gone for the gospel. The worst person in the mind, the person who hurts you the most, the person who makes the most fun of you, the person that you uh, just wish you didn't know because their presence in your life just annoys you or hurts you, whatever it may be, that person can find the good news of the gospel. The gospel's for everyone. Jesus can know everyone. The power of Jesus can cause us to, uh, to, to fall before him in awe. It's interesting, right? We see the entire Old Testament filled with miracles. And we worship God for that. We look at, we look at you know, uh, Moses through the power of God's spirit uh, splitting the Red Sea. We see the walls of Jericho crumble. We see all these incredible things happen throughout the Old Testament. We think God is a miraculous God. God can do anything. And then we look at someone who's stubborn in our lives and we think, I know God can do a lot of things. I don't know if God can do anything about that guy. I don't know if God can do anything about my dad. He seems pretty far gone. I don't know if God can do anything about my cousin. She doesn't seem to want to have, right? And we worship a God who, who, who turns seas into highways, right? We sing that song, Graves in the Gardens. We worship a God who does miracles. Why do we so often think that God's miraculous power and mercy can't reach the heart of those that we don't like? We can't ever think of that. How many evangelism opportunities, I was thinking about this, are lost because in our mind, we don't believe that God can actually do anything. It's like, well, I don't think it's going to work, so I'm just not even going to try it. Or worse off, how often do we fail to evangelize, fail to tell other people about the goodness of the gospel? Because we think that they deserve judgment. We think that they don't deserve to know the good news, right? I mean, think of someone so undeserving. This is somebody who is actively working, right, with the religious leaders at the time, to have these Christians thrown into prison. And we think this guy probably should be worthy of a little bit of judgment. And he would profess that that is the case, but that's not what he got. Because we have to look at ourselves at any moment of self-righteousness. We need to think about ourselves through the lens of where we were before Jesus. In any moment in time in history where we would like to level our sin and we look at our sin, like we kind of struggle with this, but you know, it's okay. In the grand scheme of things, I'm really not as bad as this person. You have to remember that without Christ, we all stand sinners condemned before God. But with Christ and because of his miraculous power, uh, we have connection with God. We have unity with God. And it is no different from the person that we think is the worst person in the world. It's no different than the person who's hurt you the most. They can be reached by God. They can be reached by the gospel. We must never doubt the power of God. It's in his nature to change, right? It's in his nature when there's encounters with God, everything changes and we can't doubt this. We can't uh, like just kind of forget about this. And so the question that we think, right? When we look and study a passage like this is, has there been a transformation in my life? Right? Maybe there's a person that I think needs to be transformed, but also we have to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, am I different now than it was two years ago, three years ago, four years ago? Am I different? Has there been a tangible shift in my life because of my encounter with Jesus? Am I talking different? Am I speaking differently? Do I sound different? Would my family and friends say, you're different? Yeah, absolutely. Because of our encounter with Jesus. 
Here he is three days. He can't see and he is, uh, he is not eating. And so uh, Saul hasn't been converted yet, meaning he doesn't have the Holy Spirit. He hasn't been uh, regenerated. And we see that God uses another disciple to witness and minister uh, to this guy named Saul. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 through 19 says this. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Not the Ananias we read about earlier in the book because he is unavailable now. Um, and so is Sapphira. It's a different guy named Ananias. Ananias, uh, the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise, uh, rise and go to the street called Straight and to the house of Judas and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For beloved, he is praying and he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias uh, <laughs> uh, come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered and said, Lord, I have heard about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias departed and entered to the house and laying his hand on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Here we see a simple act of obedience from a man named Ananias. This passage, we, it's interesting, all throughout chapter nine, we see two callings, right? We see the calling of Saul, right? To repentance, to turn. Uh, he's blinded and now he can see. And we also see Ananias called as well by God. Both are called by God in visions. Both see Jesus, right? Hear from him at least. And they're both called to uh, be together with one another. It's interesting. Uh, Jesus partners with humans on global mission. Jesus partners with us for his mission. Jesus could have done it, and he does, again, all of this himself and his sovereignty and his power through his Holy Spirit, uh, but he invites us on mission. He invites you on mission. The reason you're in that class, in that specific school, at that specific time, isn't a coincidence, right? The people that you hang out with after school, the people that you know from your sports team, uh, that isn't coincidental, that isn't like just something that is random that has happened. I believe that God uses us, the spirit-empowered church, to make impact in other people's lives and to have them know Jesus because of us. He partners with us on global mission. We know this from passages like this. Of course, Jesus uh, does all the work here, but he could have just been like, Saul, I forgive you. You couldn't see, but now you can see again. He says this, no, Ananias, rise and go to the street called Straight to the house of Judas and look for this man, uh, Saul from Tarsus. We get to make Christ known. He partners with us on global mission. This should always be our response. Look at this in the passage. This should always be our response. When we sense the Lord calling us to something, uh, when someone invites you to do something and you know God would want you to do it, when you get the sense that there's a calling on your life and you need to fulfill it, this should always be our answer. Here I am, Lord. Here I am, Lord. I am here and I will do what you call me to do. But it's an interesting response. Jesus, of course, tells him to do this thing. But Ananias answered, Lord, this is funny. God uses this. 
I've heard many things about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. I, this is funny. You're talking to God, right? This is funny. This is one of the few times this happens that we see in recorded history, in recorded scripture. You're talking directly with God. There's a vision that's been given to this man specifically. And he says, go do this thing. And he says, wait, I would love to God, but like this guy has authority from the chief of priests. Right? I bet God in that moment was like, oh yeah, chief of priests. I didn't think about that. Oh, wait a second. I'm God. Just do it. Like, you know what I mean? Like how often in our lives are we scared of things that God is it's just like completely insignificant? Uh, the chief priest, this guy, he has authority from him. And God's like, all right, um, but I'm still God, right? And I'll be with you. There's some hesitation and some fear. Uh, when God tells us to do something, or when we feel drawn to do something and serve him, we will often feel uncomfortable, but we will always reap the benefits when we obey. We need simple obedience. And this is an act of obedience, no matter how scared he is, no matter how uh, hesitant he feels, right? Because this is a person uh, who could hurt him, who could throw him into jail. <laughs> and, and apparently he's got the chief priest on his side as well. He's like, God, I've got to think about this thing, right? I know I want to be with you in paradise one day, but I don't know if it wa- I want that to be today, right? Maybe in a little bit. Any sort of hesitation, any sort of fear, when God calls you to do something, he's going to make a way. He's going to make it possible. He is going uh, to make a way for us to accomplish the thing that he has called us to do. When God tells you to do something, uh, you have to obey. You have to listen. How do you know what God tells us to do? Well, you should read your Bible, right? Of course, it's not always a specific calling, uh, but there's a character calling for us to be more like Christ. And that looks like uh, a million different things in our life all the time. But we must obey and reap the benefits from that obedience. Uh, what is the, what's the fear here? What's the biggest thing that he's scared about? He's scared. It says this. He has authority from the chief of, uh, a chief of priests to bind all who call on your name. The root here is the fear of man. Ananias is scared of what people are going to do to him, to his physical body. And I promise you, the fear of man will grip you way more than you realize. The fear of man will grip you far more than you realize. When God tells us to do something, when God tells us to do something, we listen. When you fear man the most, you're going to be hesitant to listen to God. When you fear God the most, you will be hesitant to listen to God. Well, what are they going to think? Are they going to hurt me? What if they're mean to me? What if I lose them? What if they don't want to be my friend anymore? What are they going to say about me? What if they spew lies about me? The fear of man will always triumph over the fear of God if we're not careful to recognize our motivation. We have to be cautious. We have to constantly be checking ourselves. What is it that I fear the most? What am I most scared of? What's the thing that's motivating me? Because I promise you, if you fear man more than God, you will live as a slave to other people's uh, opinion about you, to other people's approval at you, and that is no way to live life. There's not a way that God calls us to live. We're supposed to go through this life fearing God most so that anything and everything that comes our way, we can stand in full confidence knowing God's called me to do this thing. God has called me 
uh, to serve him this way. God has called me uh, to live like this or to not live like this. And I don't care what you say. I don't care what you do. You could kill me. You could say I'm not going to be your friend anymore. You can do whatever you want to me. I don't care. I will do what you tell me to do, God. You cannot live in the fear of man, right? We cannot live in the fear of man. And God's gracious. Jesus is so gracious in this moment. Uh, he could have said, all right, I'll try to find someone else. He says, no, go, go. Again, another call to obedience and Ananias listens. Go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name. What a powerful thing. He is a chosen instrument. He's a chosen instrument for my name. Again, we can't ever fall into the temptation that someone's too far away. Every single person that you meet who in your mind right now is a sinner, a lost person, a person who is separate from God, enemy of God, whatever, they could be a chosen instrument and you just don't know it yet. They could be a chosen instrument of God for his goodness and his good news and we, you can witness to them and maybe you'll never see the moment that God changes them. But we never know. It's not up for us to decide. That's what I'm trying to get at. It's not up for us to decide, okay, I heard this guy's pretty mean. I heard this guy's probably uh, gonna do this to me. I heard this guy can make my life really difficult if I try and step out of line. God uses his children as chosen instruments for what? Specifically here, there's a calling uh, on Paul, who is Saul in this moment, uh, to deliver the good news to the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. That's the mission of Paul. And you see that all throughout his letters, he's called uh, to the Gentiles, those who uh, aren't Jewish, those like us who are come from all different backgrounds, all different religions, all different, or sorry, all different um, uh, backgrounds, languages, whatever it is. And, and God uses this person. God changes this person and turns him into an instrument of his grace. We never, ever can think that someone can't be used by God because of their past, because of their temptations, because of whatever it is, God can use us. Again, we can never assume that somebody uh, is too far gone. Again, when we, uh, when we choose to uh, ignore the call of God, we choose to ignore or be... Um, preoccupied or fearful of man. We won't reap the benefits that comes with the obedience, right? Because of the obedience, we see here this powerful moment where Saul's eyes are physically and, and spiritually open to the goodness of the gospel. He is a man, a chosen instrument of mine, verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. As we share the ministry of Christ, right? Of course, we see Ananias. He's like, but I'm scared. What if he hurts me? And Jesus is kind of like, well, yeah, this guy needs to see how much one day he will hurt. The person who is going to hurt others will then be subject to hurt and pain uh, because of Christ, because of the mission of Christ. This is a person who will suffer for the sake of the gospel. And we benefit uh, the fruits of his ministry to this day through the knowledge of scripture that he, uh, he delivered through the help of the Holy Spirit, right? Through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But he first must suffer. Anytime we join Christ on mission, there's gonna be moments where we have pain, right? The word suffering isn't like, you know, we try and dumb it down. It's like, well, it's gonna be kind of discouraging some days, right? Ministry's hard, it's difficult, Right? There's going to be moments that you just feel like down and out and you feel in the dumps. But the reality is Christ says that as we choose to follow him, we pick up our cross and we suffer uh, like him. We suffer like him, but it is worth it. Why? Because as we suffer, 
we grow closer to Christ. As we experience pain, we grow in Christ. James 1, we learned about this. One of the first messages I ever teached here, taught here. <laughs> here we go. One of the first messages I taught here, right? As we face trials of many kinds, we grow closer to Christ. We go strengthened in Christ. And of course, here in this moment, uh, Jesus would show him how he will suffer, but as he will uh, as he will serve uh, Christ in his sufferings. So Ananias, then he listens, right? He decides after a little moment where he gets a little scared, uh, departed and entered the house and laying on his hands, he said to him, brother Saul. I love that. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Brother Saul, I bet this was such a funny a sentence for him to say, right? This guy, he's scared. This guy's like, this dude's working with the people who are trying to kill us and he's coming up to Damascus and he says, brother Saul. We never know how many people in our lives that we currently call enemies, one day we will call our brother or sister in Christ. You do not know. And it's not up for us to decide, right? A couple days earlier, Right in this moment, I'm sure a couple days earlier, Saul would have been incredibly happy to put this man Ananias in prison. But now he is there listening to him, and because of his ministry, uh, right sees God in the fullness and receives the power of the Holy Spirit. And vice versa, a few days ago, Ananias may have been praying for judgment. God, would you wipe out this persecution? God, would you uh, bring their en- our enemies to uh, th- their knees? God, would you completely wipe out this guy named Saul who is ravaging the church? And right now, Ananias is there praying with the guy that he could have been praying against. We never know, and this is the kingdom of God at work. This is what reconciliation in Christ looks like. Two people who are completely at odds with each other, one fearful of the other, one angry at the other, one uh, trying to kill and one trying uh, to, to pray against the persecution that may have been coming from this person are now one in Christ together calling each other brother. We never know the person who's your enemy, the person who just like you can't fathom knowing Christ. You can't fathom them knowing Christ. You will call them brother or sister. In this simple act of obedience, when God calls us to do something, we must listen. So what is the result of this? What is the result of this radical transformation? Verse 19, taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately, again, there's that word, suddenly, immediately. It's there all throughout scripture, all throughout Acts. Immediately, what did he do? He proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and saying, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem for those who called upon his name? Right, again, don't say that name. We, the chief priest says, we, we're not gonna kill you. We're gonna release you from prison as long as you don't what? Profess that name. Again, it's always the name of Christ. It's not anything else. We have to be aware of that thing. Is it not the man who wreaked havoc in Jerusalem for those who call upon this name? And has he not come here for the purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded that the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now we see in the final verses of the passage tonight a powerful message. He's proving to them that Jesus is the Christ. He immediately goes into the synagogues to profess this thing. Uh, This is one of the clearest signs of a true Christian, right? 
This is one of the clearest signs of a true encounter with Christ. You tell someone about it, right? If something amazing has happened in your life, if something has changed your perspective, if something has changed your attitude, what is one of the things that you want to do? You want to tell people. It's one of the immediate signs of being saved and being changed and being transformed by the power of the gospel. I want other people to know, right? Again, like Paul mentioned last week, evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. If you were starving in the wilderness and you found bread, and there's plenty of it, right? It's not like one loaf and you just have to fend for yourself. There's plenty of it, living waters, whatever it may be. You need to understand that if that's true and that joy has filled your heart and you understand these things, the first thing and one of the things we do so frequently is tell other people about it, to tell other people about it. From breathing threats of murder to proclaiming truth and grace, that's what happens here. Verse one, breathing threats and murder and then at the very end, he's increasing in strength and he's proving that Jesus Christ is the Lord. We never doubt the power of God. You can't doubt the power of God because it's in his very nature to transform. One of the clearest pictures of transformation is proclamation. If you've been transformed by God, you can't help but tell about it. If you've been transformed by God, you can't help but try and show other people radical transformation from traveling to spread persecution to traveling and spreading the good news of Jesus. This is what happens. This is a radical and powerful transformation Radical transformations do happen and they lead to powerful testimonies. See, uh, Saul, when he becomes a Christian, everything changes, right? His desires uh, are redirected back towards God. Uh, But he, in a way, is still the same person that God has made him to be. He's still the man that God has made him uh, uh, to be. It says this, it says that he was proving to them, right, that Jesus was the Christ. This is very much like Saul, who then becomes Paul. If you read any of the New Testament, right? If you read the books that he wrote, it's very logical. He's using logic. He's thinking. He was probably well-educated. He was probably one of the smartest men uh, in this day and age. And now God uses those things that he already had stored up here that he was using to spread persecution. He is now using to spread the good news by what? Proving. So there's this like debate that's happening. There's this passion that he has, right? And God uses us, right? When we're transformed, when we change, he uses the gifts, he uses the desires, he uses all those things. Instead of selfishness, he uses those things for ministry. He uses those things to serve the church. He uses those things uh, to serve. Imagine like the person in your, your life that you're like, they can never get saved, but they're really popular and they're a leader. Imagine if they did. Imagine the influence that God has given them when they become a Christian, the influence that you have when you become a Christian. Uh, God uses all these things and he uses it here in this moment. And he immediately professes to what the synagogues, this is a plural, there are multiple in this city. He's going around, he's jumping around and he's proving to these people that Jesus is the Christ. What a powerful uh, messenger because of the message he has. And the people look at this and they're like, this man, the one who is breathing threads, isn't this the guy who is coming here to tell us and to help us with this thing? And now all of a sudden he's completely different. There's something powerful about our testimony. There's something powerful about your testimony, right? And of course, we understand that all encounters with Jesus aren't like a booming voice from heaven or bright lights. I'm not saying that this is the normative experience Uh, with encountering Christ. But when we do encounter Christ, our lives are different. Our lives are changed and there's something powerful in talking about it, right? 
There's something powerful in speaking about it. One of the most powerful evangelism opportunities uh, that you have every single day is the people that you're immediately connected with. The people that you have in your uh, surrounding, it doesn't need to be, I completely understand the, the Romans road and I could take you through all these things. And right now you can, you know, our, our testimony and our ministry can be as simple as I used to be really angry. I, I used to not have a lot of self-control. I, I used to be really sad and bitter because of this thing that has happened to me. But as I got to know Jesus more, I was less angry. I don't know. As I got to know Jesus more, I realized that I could have self-control through the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't do these things that you're deciding to do because I love God and I believe that he's called me not to partake in these things. You have no idea what your testimony is going to do in someone's life. There's something powerful about your testimony. Of course, this is a beautiful and powerful example of a man radically transformed by God. As we conclude, as we look at all these things, the one thing you need to know, the one thing I want you to know, the power of Jesus changes anything and can, can transform anyone. The power of Jesus changes everything and can transform everyone. Anyone can reach and understand the good news of Jesus. They're not beyond our reach. They're not beyond knowing. They're not too lost. And when we do encounter Jesus, it should change everything. To the person in the room who hasn't embraced Christ in faith, and you're riddled with guilt for the things you've done, I promise you, you're not too far gone. There's not a line that you've crossed. There's not a thing that you've said. I don't care where you've been, what you've seen. God loves you, and he uh, cares for you, and he is reconciling all things to himself. And the forgiveness that comes with repentance is available to you. So the person who is in the room and they're still having arms folded and wondering if this good thing is, is worth it, and they're wondering uh, if this could possibly be true, why would a person so, so bent on destroying something, breaking down these things and destroying this rebellion is now uh, one of the main instruments used by God? How does that happen, right? If it's all a lie, if it's all made up, why would something like this happen? Why would this be the truth? Why would somebody change their entire lives and then get killed for the gospel eventually and suffer for the rest of their lives, right? No money, no power, this is all an illusion, right? None of those things happen to this person. He would receive uh, death and persecution because of it. And to the person in the room, uh, why would, why? Why would he go through this? Why would he experience this level of pain? Maybe because it's true. And if you're a Christian in the room and you, you know God and you uh, are, are hearing about this idea of transformation and you're riddled with guilt because you want to change, there's some things in your life that you want to be different or you're tired of struggling with this thing. You're tired of being an angry person. You're tired of struggling with lust. You're tired uh, of, of being selfish, right? And you want change. I want to be different. I want to be transformed. I want this power. See, people so often, I say, stop trying so hard and embrace Christ. Stop trying so hard in your own self-righteousness to accomplish or level, like uh, measure your sins versus good and bad and trying your hardest. We need, at the end of the day, the same exact thing uh, that Saul needs, and that's the power of Christ. We need the goodness of God in our lives. To so the Christian who wants to transform, I say, turn to Christ in prayer, in worship, in community, in relationship, whatever it may be, turn to Christ, embrace him by faith. Jesus, again, he's the only one who can transform. 
There's no true and total transformation in your life, in the life of your friend, in the life of someone who's lost without the power of Christ. The person who doesn't know, you need to tell them. And if you're in your life right now and you're trying to do this all on your own, you can't. It's not possible. He, we worship the God, the only one who can totally transform the stubborn, the sinner, and the self-righteous. It's in his very nature to do these things. We never doubt his power. We recognize that in this moment, the persecutor becomes the messenger of the most beautiful message of all time, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The power of Christ transforms uh, everyone, can uh, change everything and transform anyone. In your life, you need to believe that. You need to believe that for yourself. You need to believe that for your friends, for your family, for the person that God calls you to in the future. We hold fast to this truth. Let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you uh, for this word. God, thank you for um, Thank you for transformation. Thank you that uh, you are a God that constantly is refining us and transforming us. God, I pray for the person in the room who uh, doesn't know you. I pray that you would continue to pull on their hearts. God, you'd continue to call them towards yourself. God, I pray for the person in the room who is tired of struggling with the same thing over and over again. God, I pray uh, that they would embrace you uh, once again, right? They would uh, run to you once again and recognize it's of no working of their own. It's of no uh, righteousness. It's of no uh, trying really hard or self-discipline, whatever it may be. It is because of your, uh, your righteousness, God. I pray that they would remember that and they would turn to you again. God, to the person who is uh, convicted in this moment because they've been looking at people as just lost hopes. They are, uh, they are a lost cause. God, I pray that you would continue to remind us and show us that if it wasn't for you, we would be in this same boat. We would still be uh, enemies of you. We would still be separated from you. And so I pray that we would remember that as we uh, continue to share the goodness. We would continue to recognize uh, that you're constantly transforming others like you have transformed our lives. God, I pray for the person in the room who is uh, not seen transformation in their life. Maybe uh, tonight would be the night that they recognize that they need you for the first time that they do need to embrace you in faith and that they need to turn from their sin. God, I pray that you would continue uh, to stir their hearts closer and closer to you and that we would be ready uh, to talk through that and to pray through that with them, Lord. And we give these things to you and we love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. And one of the reasons that uh, we sing is because we believe that this is a joyful thing, right? To know Christ and to make him known is something, it's a privilege that we get to do, amen? Amen? So let's stand together and sing.